The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please follow as I'm going to read God's Word, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. I looked at this two previous weeks with you, seeking to hear a prophecy from the first 11 verses of God's comfort to His people, saying that He would pay for their sins, He would come to them, He would bring them strength, and He would bring them the tender care of a shepherd. And all of that, we believe, is a messianic prophecy fulfilled in Christ. I have an ambitious task to try to give you some grasp of the whole remainder of this chapter. I can't, of course, comment on every phrase or even every paragraph, but I am going to read Isaiah 40, 12 through the end, and I'd ask you to try to see today as we think on this, the rather comprehensive message that God gave His prophet. Listen to God's Word. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on scales and the hills as in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him or teach him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold, fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot, and he looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to nothing. He reduces rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them, and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each by name? 
because of his great power and mighty strength. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, or complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. For even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the Word of God. I ask you to suppose that a helicopter would descend on some area deep in an Amazon jungle and there make contact with a tribe of people who live in near Stone Age fashion. People who have no real idea of modern technology and who do not speak our language, who've never seen a television, who have no concept of the modern world. What if that same helicopter were to take a few of those people in all of their primitive state, as we would define it, and take them and drop them off in Times Square, New York City, and leave them there, not speaking a word of the language, not having any concept of what these vast buildings are and people rushing by them. I was trying to think, what would they recognize? And I came up with tattoo parlors. We've still got the Stone Age in us, don't we? But how would those people manage, utterly bewildered in the modern world? Well, I give you that image this morning because I believe the Bible argues that the best educated, most sophisticated, most culturally and technologically advanced modern human being actually shares the same fate as that Stone Age person if they seek to live in the world that the true God has made and exclude from it knowledge of that true God. They simply cannot understand the world around them. A man named A.W. Tozer about 50 years ago wrote a little classic book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a great book about God. And Tozer said this, the history of mankind will show that no people ever rise above their religion. And no religion has ever been any greater than whatever its idea of God is. And so Tozer said, if we are going to extract from a human being an answer to this question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? When we hear someone answer, what do you think about God? We may predict with some certainty, he said, the entire spiritual future of that individual. Well, assuming Tozer was correct, it's utterly important that our ideas about God be correct ideas, that they would conform to the truth of what God is. 
Now, Isaiah 40 is a rather epic chapter, and I brought it before you earlier in December and dealt with its first 11 verses preceding Christmas because they constitute a wonderful prediction and prophecy that leads to what God did in Christ and the gospel. But I'm left now with the task of trying to show you that the rest of the chapter, although different, belongs with the first part. The chapter opened with God speaking through his prophet to say, bring comfort to my people. Now, comfort from God is not a pat on the back. The very word means to come alongside with strength. You comfort someone when you bring strength into their situation that they don't have. Isaiah 40 verse 9 said, behold your God. Look at what God is and what he's doing. He's going to act in strength and with a mighty arm, verse 9 said. And then verse 11, the last time we looked at this, added that that along with that mighty arm would be the tender care of a shepherd. And of course, Christ fulfilled all that. But now we really ought to mark a line of division in this chapter. Not that it's a new chapter, and I know your Bibles don't show this. In fact, those, those that have Bibles organized into paragraphs with some spaces between, it's actually a fairly small space between 11 and 12, and maybe you would think, well, that doesn't look like a major division, but I would contend that it is. And in fact, we have one thing happening from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. To understand it, I would tell you the key to it is verse 27. For there in verse 27, Isaiah the prophet actually was mimicking in his voice what he would imagine the captives coming out of Babylon, to whom this was written, would be saying to themselves. And what he knew about captives who had been long in a disgraceful state and confined is that they would be complaining. And so he says, speaks that question, why do you say, O Jacob, or complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? I am contending that it is an answer to those complaints of these captives who thought that what had been announced that God was going to do was too fantastic, too, too marvelous, too amazing, and they just said, oh, God doesn't care about us anymore. God doesn't see us God doesn't know what's wrong for us. And all they did was whine. For their benefit, God gave Isaiah verses 12 to the end of this chapter. He gave this wonderful revelation of the grandeur of who and what God is. And the great hope that if they would apply to their practical situation and their their disillusionment and their complaints, the greatness of God, their whole situation would be transformed. But if they would not, they'd be like those Stone Age people trying to exist in a whole situation they couldn't begin to understand. It was by knowing who their God is and holding on to Him and trusting in Him that they would be able to function in a practical way. Now, first of all today, what I want to do is survey in a real rapid fashion verses 12 through 26. There's so much here could easily be four or five sermons here, I'm, and it's, this is only part of one sermon. But I'm just giving you an airplane view of this exaltation of the greatness of God. The theme here, I believe, is this, that the true God is incomparably greater than any human mind can appreciate. And Isaiah breaks that down into a number of different uh, statements or, or 
uh, pegs in that argument. One would be this, that the true God is supreme in his wisdom and knowledge. Verse 13 says that. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? Who has instructed the Lord? Who has shown him the path of understanding? I find satisfaction in my role as your regular preacher on Sunday morning when you say something to me uh, that you might say going out of church. Well, that really, hap- that really helped me, Pastor. Thank you for that thought or that encouragement. It helped me so much. But I, I know not just with false modesty how to receive that compliment because it's a compliment to the Word of God. The wisdom, if to you it was wisdom, was God's wisdom in the first place. And in fact, I had no originality to even weave around it because I had in front of me a, a desk full of books that I went to the experts and the, the linguistic people, the Hebrew experts and the Greek experts and the theologians and fellow pastors who've written, and I put their wisdom together. And if, if something wise came out, it wasn't mine. It was God's, and it was better minds than mine that, that put it together. Now, how different that is with the Lord, Isaiah says, When you look at the Lord, you're looking at original wisdom. You're looking at the very fountainhead of knowledge and intelligence. And you need to be reminded that when you challenge him for allegedly not knowing something or acting in ignorance or just not, you know, doing an unwise thing, you've got to stop and think who you're challenging. We can't penetrate the ways of God. We have a a word for that. His ways are inscrutable. We can't see all the way into them. Maybe we can see just below the surface, but we can't see all the way down to what he's doing. Sometimes we don't even get good hints of what he's doing, and he completely surprises us. And then we say, oh, God, what are you doing? Don't you know this is what I need? Don't you know that wasn't supposed to happen? But Isaiah says, look, Think who you're talking to. You're talking to the one whose mind is above every mind. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, later on, the prophet will say, speaking for the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You see, this is an interesting point because some people cannot worship God because they can't figure him out with their reason. But I would ask them, how would you worship a God whose intelligence was lower than yours, who you could always figure out? He wouldn't be subject to worship. He'd be inferior to you. Amazingly, though God's mind and his wisdom and his understanding is so much greater in his word, he condescends to make much of his mind known to us. He's not 100% inscrutable. He has chosen to make many things understood. But we are still many times to stop and trust and say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. What you're doing here, in fact, what you've been doing in my life for the last six months is is just not what I think. But, Lord, I will back off. And I will believe that your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts higher than my thoughts. He's greater in terms of intelligence and wisdom. And before him often we just have to cover our mouths with wonderment. Now, another peg in this argument or another uh, argument that God is incomparably greater than our minds can appreciate comes in verses 15 to 17. There he compares God to every nation of the earth and says why 
Alongside him, I love the imagery. The nations are like fine dust on the scales. What if you had a, a scientific scale? You'd have to have, a, and there are, there are such scales, I'm sure, that scientists use that are highly calibrated to weigh the least little thing. And you drop two grains of sand on that scale. Maybe there'd be a scale that could weigh that, but as we well know, most scales would not be much affected. By the fine dust... What a comparison. Are we willing in this end of this year, 2009, to understand that even our great nation that we cherish and love, the United States of America, in comparison to God at least, is nothing but fine dust on his scale? That's a shocking thought to some of us. We're used to thinking of our nation as, as being the greatest, most important, consequential nation that ever was. It has the greatest air force. It has the greatest navy. It has more money in its treasury, although it's disappearing rather rapidly lately. Its economy is still strong. While we say, we're great. We have freedom. And God says, you're equal to fine dust in my scale. Because he would not have us be arrogant simply because we're Americans. It's a fine thing to be an American. But in the eyes of God, it's not impressive. Notice one image here in verse 16 quickly. Maybe you didn't pick up what was being referred to, but it talks about sacrificial fires with animals on them, and it says Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires. Do you know what's in Lebanon? The cedars of Lebanon, those great trees. They were great forests in the old days in Lebanon. And it's as if God is saying, if you reaped all the forests from Lebanon, piled them up miles high and lit a blaze and piled animals on it, why, it wouldn't impress me. It wouldn't really necessarily attract my notice. And then there's a third argument here for God's great uniqueness. It's maybe the one I love the best in 18 through 20. Isaiah was a great one for mocking idolatry. Isaiah didn't just denounce idolatry, as as the Old Testament and New Testament alike do. He positively mocked it all the time. And he does it again here. A craftsman casts an idol, a goldsmith makes it. If a man's too poor, he looks for wood, but of course he wants wood that won't rot. And he sets up an idol, and he wants to make sure it doesn't topple over. Do you see his tongue's in his cheek? You know, idols could fall over. They have no power. If the shelf was leaning in the wrong direction, down goes your idol. Isaiah's making fun here. He does it again, Isaiah 44, 12. You could look that up where he has a delicious bit of irony when he says, well, a man takes a log and he cuts it in half and, and half of it he chops up for firewood and he builds a fire and cooks his dinner. The other half he carves into an idol and he sets it up and prays to it. Isaiah's laughing at the folly of idolatry. Again in chapter 46, he says, he names two idols there, Bel and Nebo, who had to be carried around in the backs of a donkey. And he says, well, you want to get this idol from one place to another, you carry it. And his implication is, wouldn't you rather worship a God who could carry you than a block of wood you have to carry around? So God is so much greater than any image made. But then another pillar in this argument quickly comes in verses 21 to 26 where he 
He basically pictures God on the universal throne, enthroned above the circle of the earth. People are like grasshoppers. There, there might be millions of grasshoppers, and you wouldn't count one of them as, as being significant to you. And he especially looks at rulers here. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. He reduces rulers to nothing. If I could pick a verse for a politician who might take an oath of office in January to some position, whether local as a magistrate or I guess we don't have congressional elections this year, but a judge or anyone else, I would say maybe it would be good for them to be humbled and read Isaiah 40, 24. If any ruler over any people at any level of government thinks they are something, let them read this. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than God blows on them and they wither. Oh, we think our presidential administrations are so important. How long do they last? What are they in the eyes of God? They're planted, they sprout, and then they wither again. And God endures You think of this past year and all the retrospectives that are telling you the great folk who have passed on. Walter Cronkite, one of our greatest journalists, many of us grew up with Uncle Walter. It wasn't news until Walter said, and that's the way it is. You think of the artist, Andrew Wyeth, one of the great American artists. Senator Edward Kennedy, one of the longest serving, most powerful senators in the history of this country, all gone to death. In this past year, God blows on them, and they're gone. And so we come to what is really the conclusion of this big argument being made from verses 12 through 26. Verse 25 puts it in a nutshell. What is God trying to get across here? He's saying, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Says the Holy One. I haven't even spoken about His holiness yet. Who is the equal of this grand and glorious God who names the stars, everyone, in verse 26? And he knows every one of them in their orbits. Now, you see, folks, I believe we're being given this great picture of God for a purpose. And that brings us to the second and concluding point in verses 27 to 31. We've been shown a God who is so amazing, so incomparable, so holy, so everything, every dimension, his intellect, his wisdom, everything is huge. Why did God reveal this to us through Isaiah? He did it for what he's about to say in personal application in these remaining verses, that this very true God is all-sufficient to the need of every believer. You see, he could have stopped. This, this whole thing could have stopped at verse 26, and you would have been just left stunned. Wow! God is tremendous! And, and I don't know what conclusion you would have drawn from that or what application you would have made, but you would have gone away thinking, wow, God is, is unlike anyone. He's utterly unique. But the Lord drew an application here. And he didn't simply want you to say, God is tremendous. He wanted you to see that this same God who names every star knows the number of hairs on your head. And he is not only all-powerful, but verse 29 is the crux of it. He gives his strength 
All that he is, he gives this to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Do you see why the questions were so foolish that they were asking, why me, Lord? Oh, Lord, do you care? Oh, do you see what's going on, God? Isaiah stood back. He said, first, number one, see God. See who you're talking about. Number two, instead of wailing every time your train jumps the track, you know, you don't wail with those questions when things are going well, do you? You feel like, oh, well, God owes me good circumstances. It ought to be going well. Isn't that what I deserve? But then let things go a little wrong, and we say, oh, God, are you looking? Whoa, here I am. Things aren't going well. Oh, God, you made a mistake. Isaiah is trying to get you to see. When you know who God is, you will not decide he's made a mistake. You will know that you are dealing with the one who does everything right with all power and all righteousness and all justice and that he is working for your good. And he comes to this conclusion saying that this God, creator of the galaxies, is intimately concerned about you and me. He wants to give us his strength. He gives strength to the weary. You know, it's so tempting when you're weak and you know it, and when you're sick and you know it, when you're grieving and you know it, to say, I guess God's too busy running the universe somewhere else to be attentive to me right now. Isaiah has built God up large for the purpose of showing that all the tremendous resources found in this God are available for your power and your renewal as you hope in him. The Puritan author Thomas Brooks said, God has all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, and all his happiness will crown you. You see, Isaiah started out with a plan saying, God is going to come into history, you captives. You people all bewildered by long years of captivity. He's going to come to save you. He's going to come to pay double for your sins, we were told in verse 2. He's going to come with strength. He's going to come with tenderness. But stand back and understand, it's the great God who made everything. It's the holy God. It's the all-wise God, the sovereign God, who's going to do this. And how this grand God loves to have one of us discover our emptiness and say, oh God, I'm empty. Oh God, I'm broken. Oh God, I don't know what's going on in my life. I I have no power to influence anything. I've tried everything I can try except you. Oh God, I'm weak. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 said, the power of this God gets perfected at the point of our weakness, when we discover that weakness and we confess it. How God loves it when one of us finally gets it and says, oh God, I'm empty. Only you can fill me. That was exactly what Jesus was talking about in John 11 when he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and loaded down, and I will give you rest, renewal, strength. I'll make you new. I think we all love the inspiring language Isaiah closed with here in verses 30 and 31. 
it seems like great poetry. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. I'm here to tell you it's more than poetry. We do soar on wings of eagles when God in Christ pays for our sin and accepts us as his children and gives us a new birth and justifies us by his grace. We now have a life that is in the heavenlies at the right hand of God where only an eagle could soar. Yes, we can run too with special bursts of energy at times of crisis in our lives, and that comes from God. After it, we get through it and we say, how did I get through that time? I don't know where I found the strength. It was the Lord. But maybe the greatest word said in that poetic passage is the one that sounds the most mundane. You know, it's poetic to soar with an eagle or to run, but walking and not fainting is the last word. And isn't that what we need to do every day? Walking by faith, not fainting, keeping our eyes on the greatness of this God and His Savior who He's brought into this world? I can tell you there are many, many days when I feel more like some kind of a bedraggled sparrow than a mighty eagle. But I'm thankful that as I read this passage, it doesn't say God is waiting for me to be strong for Him. It says He's waiting to be strong for me. What a difference. What a difference. Hoping in the Lord means pleading for what we don't have. And knowing that our God and Savior exists not only to buy us pardon from sin, but to give us his power for every day. As you turn a calendar page, as you perhaps make some transition, you students, to a new semester, or whatever new challenges might face your business or your occupation in a brand new year, I like to believe that a word from Hebrews 12, verse 1 would have been a word Isaiah would have chimed in with, a big amen, had he lived to hear it. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. But above all, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the power source the source of all blessing. Go into 2010 with these words on your lips. I can do all things through him who gives me his strength. Amen. Our Father, we need your renewal day by day. We need salvation in Christ, but we also need power. Forgive anyone here so arrogant as not to admit to himself or herself their need, their emptiness, their weakness. May we, in bowing before your grandeur, you who could have regarded us as as fine dust or grasshoppers or ants, you're large enough to never notice us at all. And yet, you want to give us your strength. And so, Father, we want those eagles' wings. We want that energy to run and to walk. May we seek it from you. To your honor and praise, in Jesus' name, amen.